Talk Show. Recorded live. I'd like to welcome everybody to episode two of uh, Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jelson, and this is my co-host. And I'm Jim. And this week we have a special guest with us, uh, somebody we like to call our mentor, and that is uh, Mr. Don McElhaney. Say hello, Don. Well, hello. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm glad you could come on. Uh, when Jim and I were talking about doing this, uh, we thought of uh, you know different people we'd have as our first guest, and you instantly came to mind. We've just had a great time with the, the dives we've done with you, so, you know, what better than to have somebody we dive with uh, as, as a first guest for the show and we get to chat? Absolutely. Yeah. So well, I'm, uh, glad, I'm glad to be here again, and uh, go ahead and ask away. G- great, great. Uh, so just, uh, Don, if you could give the listeners just a little bit of background about yourself. What, uh, what got you into diving, and, and when did you actually dive your first time? Well, actually, I began diving. Uh, I began building diving helmets in 1963, and uh, I'm on a group there on scuba board. Under the group, it's called the Dinosaurs. So we're sort of uh, the old guys. So, like I said, I started building helmets in '63, and what I would do is take a five-gallon food tin. I was also a military brat, so five-gallon food tins, pretty good size. They were rectangular. I'd go ahead and cut a faceplate out put a stand bag on the top for a counterweight, plastic over the front, and glue it. Used a large bore bicycle pump to pressurize a small tank. And ergo, that was my first dive helmet. And I survived in spite of myself. Oh, my goodness. Now, now you you did that just as a, I mean, because there was Mark V and other sort of gear, and, you know, and scuba was out, but you just did this as a, a way of being able to dive? Well, I think that was back in the old Jacques Cousteau and Mike Nelson days, and I didn't have any of that, and uh, I used to like to swim a lot, and I used a base pool, and I started out with a fighter pilot mask, saying, how far down can I go and breathe on that with a tube? I I realized real quick that you can't go very far, you know, with a snorkel. And then we figured, well, let's try a little different. We did the snorkel, and we did a bicycle pump. And you could do it, but you really had to pump like crazy. So then that went into the, the helmet aspect. And it turned out it worked really good as long as you don't bend over. Oh, yeah. That comment works out? good in so many ways. But uh, yeah. so so how, how deep could you get with that type of rig? You could go all the way down, I mean, easy down to 15 feet as long as they could pump enough air to you. So you had to bribe your pumping friend real yeah, well. So that yeah, you really didn't want to tick him off any uh, until it was his chance to get down on the bottom because, you know, he pumps for you, you pump for him. So it's one of those buddy systems, one of the first buddy systems. Now, now did right. you want to be the first diver or the second diver? Which worked out better? Well, I wanted to be the first because it was my idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I, I didn't know if you, you know, the, when when the prank started coming in, you know, if you if you were nice, if uh, you were the first one down, and you were nice, if that went better. No, it worked out pretty good. But again, it's a learning experience, and you know, you look back and wonder how many times could you have hurt yourself. A little oh, education gosh. works wonders. But uh, that's how I actually started. I really didn't become certified, meaning so I could go get air. Until 1973. 
And then I picked up a YMCA shirt, and that was back in the days when all the guys teaching you used to be ex-Navy. Yeah. Uh, probably the most outstanding item I remember in basic, meaning the training we gave there is, in the deepest part of the pool, which was at this time 15 feet, uh, one of the exercises to get out is you had to eat a banana and drink a Coke. Eat a banana and drink a Coke. Right. And the purpose was is to give you exercise and taking your regulator out, actually swallowing, and actually doing those chores. It's a confidence filter, and it was actually pretty interesting. I mean, once you did it, it's like, hey, this is no big deal. But it's yeah, like yeah. whenever you first started, remember the first time you did a Dauphin Don on the bottom of the pool, it was a challenge. Once yeah. you got the technique down, it was fun. Right. Certainly. Now, that that kind of brings up a, a point. Now, you've been around long enough um, compared to Darren and I, who are absolute uh, rookies um, time-wise. What do you think about the training now as opposed to the training, uh, like you're mentioning, from the Y program? The training I, I got when I was doing basic scuba was what you would pick up in your advanced open water. That's the difference. And that really right. surprises me. We actually did the 60-foot free ascent. Well, you know, from a tethered buoy at 60 feet. My understanding nowadays is they don't do that because of all uh, the liability. But we did. No. Yeah, we we our uh, our ascent was horizontal um, in a pool uh, essentially. Um, and I yeah. don't I don't know why was it was a liability thing. I guess looking back at it, it probably was. I'm not quite sure they even do that now. Matter of fact, I don't think they do. But ours was in a pool, uh, not a pool, but in the in the lake uh, on a tethered. It was a deep lake, obviously, because we were at 60 feet at the marker, and uh, right. then we got a free ascent from there. Yeah. Um, again, the training was good. The guy was a real pain in the butt, but you learned. One, you're paying money. Two, you know, you wouldn't be there if you didn't want to learn it. And by the time you got to the open water, is if you were going to drop out, you'd have dropped out long before that. Oh, right. certainly. So, I don't know, maybe the training just stuck and it made you feel like you were accomplishing something. But that's when I got well, certified. But he he always stressed one item. He says, all the C card was is a license to learn. All that means is you can get out into the water and start really learning. He had the basic... We knew that don't hold your breath, which is probably the, the number one item you always learn. And everything else, he said, but that's just a start. It's like when you first start, started driving your car, both hands on the wheel at 3 o'clock, 10 o'clock, eyes straight ahead, tell the uh, radio off, really paying attention to what you're doing. About, what, two weeks later, you got your elbow out the window, you know you're on cruise with one arm. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a good analogy. So, yeah, and, was a good and place continuing to learn. Well, I didn't pick up the Maui and the Patty until years later because I just wanted to enhance something. Uh, I mean, back when uh, Sir Larry and I, we we took what you call a slam course. It's like a rescue diver now, but it was uh, scuba life-saving accident management. And believe it or not, one of the tools or one of the, the items we did in that class is we practiced mouth-to-mouth resuscitation as if you were trapped under a ladder. You do a breath hold, go down, match lips, and, and breathe one. See, how long could you do that? Now, as long as you had a girl partner, it was a lot of fun. 
Yeah. But either, either way, it was a heck of a learning experience, and it worked really good until you got tickled and you couldn't stop laughing. Then the guy was going to draw, of course. But well, that's what we used to do in the slam course. I don't. I bet you nickel they don't do that anymore. Oh, they don't. They don't even. Nope. They don't even train buddy breathing anymore. One of the exercises we used to do is have to take the tank, put it under your arm with no regulator, breathe off the tank, and swim the circuit in the pool. Now, if you've never done that, it sounds hard, but you can really do it. And obviously, so you would, silence, you've never done that. <laughs> you would you would oh. take a, a tank with no uh, tank. no valve. No regulator, right. Yep, and you'd and go down, just, and you'd breathe off that sucker and do a circuit of the pool without coming up. And that sounds weird, but it isn't. It was, again, one of these exercises we learned before we did our open water. You can do it. Remember the old stuff, the car sinks, and James Bond goes down, and he takes the little valve out of the inner tube, and he breathes off the air because it's got 30 pounds, which will yep. work at 15 feet. You can do that. It will actually work. And by being able to breathe off the tank itself, it shows you as long as you've got air, you can breathe. If you don't panic, right? Wow! But those are some items you've never done. They are fun to do. It's something we might want to do as a club here, just to to go and say, let's do a couple of things we used to do in the old days. Yeah, you know, no, I, I like I, that idea. The, I agree. Anything to expand our skills and uh, you know help us be better divers, I, I'm all for. You know, I I learned quite a bit, even though we did in the class. Uh, we had that one uh, dive in Pawpaw Lake out there in Elney Bay, and I lost my reg twice in that dive. And, you know, as as much as I didn't want that reg to come out of my mouth, I'm glad it did because now I, I'm much more confident and I know, you know, because all the training in the world is good, but there's something about it being real and being able to overcome it that just gives you all that more confidence. Uh, the real part is when you're when you're going to be in the river or you're going to be with a buddy and it's going to be a limited visibility, he's going to turn around and kick your face with your mask. It's going to come off. And after that first, like, you know, you, you do that intake of air, you just close your eyes and, and calm down. It's not a major trauma. But you never know how you're going to react until that happens unless you practice it. Right, right. I agree. And that's, that's funny you mentioned that. That's the exact scenario that, I think Darren is talking about, and uh, I was I was the buddy, and uh, uh, I had, had mistakenly uh, kicked Darren's regulator out of his mouth, but uh, it all turned out okay. And it, like Darren says, it's a it's a confidence building thing to know that, hey, if something like that does happen, um, you you can have the wherewithal to just relax and and take control of the situation again. And uh, I felt bad for doing it, but uh, you know, in the end, everything turned out okay. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. another reason that when you start out, you got to remember you got 10, 20 dives under your belt. You're still learning. And you don't suddenly say, hey, I've had 20 successful dives. I'm going to go dive on the Andradori of 210 feet. You don't take the quantum leaps. Um, an equation or an equivalent is in parachute jumping, for example. One of the biggest problems nowadays is not the equipment. It's the individual landing the parachute to kill themselves under a fully functional operating rig because they overstepped what they did is they went from a big parachute to a little parachute too quick the same as diving you're doing really good in shallow water clear that's where you want to make your errors 
So when you make them at 100 feet or somebody kicks your, your mask off, you've done it in 15 feet and you're recovered. If you didn't, you're less likely to have hurt yourself at 15 feet. So I suppose the big item for me is just because you're diving, don't get overconfident, no matter how long you've been diving, and take the steps, you know, little steps, little steps, and build up. Uh, for example, you guys are doing great. Um, you've demonstrated real awareness of the situation when you've been in the river. Um, that's unusual. You guys are doing really good, but you're doing it in bite-sized parts. You're not trying to make quantum leaps. So that's I'm, I'm, I'm have, for me. Yeah, and I have fun with every dive. I, I don't understand the desire just to do a dive that's extreme to say you did one that's extreme. I mean, I've had plenty of, I mean, I can have fun under 20 feet without a problem. Uh, if, if I'm going to go deeper or do something a little bit more challenging, it's, it's because there's something there to do and we'll work our way up to it. So, you know, I, I, Jim and I were both nervous. I remember that first river dive, you know, we, we, I mean, that, that's part of the reason why I scouted that site in so much detail. I just wanted to know as much about the location as possible you know, re- reduce the variables and reduce the unknown. And if you can just keep it to a few things, which was that we didn't have experience in current. Uh, so, you know, then there, there's just less, you know, there's always going to be something that goes wrong. And just from other things I've done, it's it's when one thing goes wrong and then something else goes wrong and it, that easily cascades. It, it kind it, It's kind of back to anything else. Uh, you know, if, if you have an equipment malfunction, there's no sense on continuing on. You just call the dive. So, Well, and that was one of the issues we had in our SLAM course, uh, that scuba life-saving accident management. It was pay attention to the other divers. Uh, we had just finished that class. The next weekend, we're doing a boat dive using the techniques they taught us to watch for other people. And it's like, that guy's going to drown. And darn if the guy didn't try to drown himself. It's like you were talking. Uh, the guy went out. He had trouble. He, he put his mask on upside down before he got off the boat. Okay. I should have been a little bell going off. Got in the water. His buddy didn't turn his air on until he got in the water. Number two. The key item is, like you said, it's a cascade. It's a lot of little items that mount up to a big one. And by observing the actions of the people, you can usually predict how it's going to go and when to sort of step in and intervene. You guys well, how did small you, steps. How did you go from uh, from uh, making your own dive helmets to to doing that? What, what's your favorite thing to do underwater now? Um, I know that you like to explore and look for, uh, you know, uh, old discarded things that, you know, a bottle is, is currently our treasure when we find it, an old bottle, uh, an ink bottle or a medicine bottle or something like that. What's your favorite thing to, to see underwater now? I think the item that you mentioned is, what do you like to do? Um, yep. A lot of people up here, 80% of the people who take classes uh, at our local establishment up here, take them to go down to the south where you have clear visibility, warm water, colors, and fish, so they can go out and see stuff. Up here, you don't have that luxury of the visibility, uh, the colorations, the fish. So you have to have some other reason you're out there. Me, I'm a grubber. I always like to know what am I going to find under the water, be it two foot or ten feet, that mm-hmm. somebody lost. And of course, I'm looking for value. It'd be nice to find the gun, the safe, 
you know, in my case, the good bottle. Other items, yep. is once you start diving a little more, you get on your first wreck, and that is really addictive. You get on a decent wreck, you start out shallow on a rubble wreck like Havana, but then you go up and you dive a 500-foot steel freighter in 150 foot of water, and it's like, wow, you're talking about fun. You're not, because you're concentrating on the wreck aspect, and that's if you just stay outside. Then the other aspect, right, now what I want to do next, I'm going to do penetration diving. There's a whole bunch of stuff you need to learn, techniques. And I think what kept me interested is every time I did something different, there was something else I had to learn and I had to master before I went on to something else. Because wreck diving right. is totally different. Cavern diving is different than cave diving. You know, it's, And I it's think that's mm-hmm. what they what you you were talking about, the parachute uh, going from a, a big chute down to a small uh, sport chute or something like that. Uh, that's the same thing that we see in in scuba. You know, you read about people doing some things uh, that are that are outside of their realm. Uh, you know, doing a penetration in a cave or or in a wreck and and uh, silting it up and then not having a, an exit plan or, or a way to get out. Um, that's why the the little steps for for the new guys uh, like Darren and myself are so important uh, in being able to follow uh, a mentor uh, such as yourself. So you've, you're considering yourself as still learning uh, oh, about diving? I, I usually learn something. Either it's a, it's like going back to a class you've already had. You're always going to pick up something you either forgot, didn't remember, or it makes more sense now. It has more significance because you can equate something to it. Like, like oh, yeah, I've done that. I know what you mean about kicking the mask off, losing the regulator. Uh, little items like when you're diving out in the river. When you start heating yourself, like, I'm getting cold, I'm not really cold, but I'm getting cold, it's time to get out now before I get too cold. Yes. When your hands are cold, you get out. You don't wait till you can't move your fingers to get out. You, you probably can do it, but you just, your margin, you just cut your margin of safety down. And now you're starting to use better, I don't want to say common sense, but you're using the experience you've gained that, yeah, I can come back and dive tomorrow. I don't have to dive today. I don't have to stretch this dive out. I think the other places I've seen people get in trouble, commercially or, or otherwise, is not diving your plan. And that, that sounds really silly. But if you plan on coming up with 500 pounds, come up with 500 pounds. It's always that, well, I'm going to stay down there and look just for a few more minutes. Well, that's when you get yourself snagged and now you've got 300 pounds. You feel really, really silly, to say the least. Yeah, and you really, know really dead if it turns out, yeah. Oh, definitely. It, it can be. So, uh, it, so you, you got certified in 1973. Right. Now, now, and I, I had got... used scuba before that. It's just I went and got licensed. Okay. So you went from 63 where you were building your helmet to 73 you got the certification. So in between that time you were, uh, you know, getting stuff together, maybe having somebody else do some air refills for you? Right, and I, I was, really wasn't doing a lot of scuba diving. Uh, it was one of those I got started early, and that's when I was in high school. Between then and whatever, I got married, out of the Army, had a few things going on, so back in 73, as I said, let me get back into this because it was a lot of fun. And I was fortunate that I picked up, and I had a dive buddy just like you and Darren, 
if you don't have somebody with you, because someday you don't want to go, he does, but you go anyway, and then you're glad you did. Just like going to church. Some days you don't want to go, but after you get there or after you're done, you're glad you went. The same thing with the diving. But you've got to have somebody who's going to dive with you. Like I mentioned earlier about you guys, you've actually helped the club because you guys are getting out there doing what we did. But then again, you know, you're 20 years younger or more. It's good to have somebody prompt us a little bit and remember how much fun it really was. And I think the other part a lot of us like is it's fun to take new people out because it's neat to watch them learn. And the little stuff we take for granted, it's like, oh, we didn't know that. And it's like, ching, ching, you got another little item in your little reserve bucket there. Uh, if I have a problem, I've got this experience behind me now. And it's nice to watch you guys pick up the experience in steps. Oh, so it, part of it is watching people. Oh, it, it's invaluable. I mean, just the everybody we've dived with, with the club, it, it's been great. I, you know, I don't, you know, the training we've had with the dive shop has been good, but I don't think there's any substitute for just diving with people with knowledge who have been there before and done it before and are willing to share. And we've picked up a ton of information and skills that, you know, it would, not that they wouldn't have come some other way, but it had been much harder and much longer. You know, Jim and I talked about last week is just, you know, the, what the club kind of introduced us to is we didn't realize that every body of water near us was a potential diving spot. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. The, the item you were just talking about a minute ago, though, you get the experience by diving, and that's what you're trying to do. And if you can get somebody to help show you places to dive, that's wonderful. But the experience, you're, gonna, you're, you're, you're learning on your own, really. I mean, we can tell, we can show but you're the one doing it. And from every dive you do, that's where you gain that experience. That's where you learn what can you do and what what is your comfort level. And like they taught you in, in class, whenever you don't feel like diving, it's like you make this trip out to wherever we're going to go for a big deep wreck. You get out there and you just don't feel right that day or you're not into it. You never make fun of anybody who says, I'm not diving today for whatever reason. That means you're using good judgment. When in doubt, yeah. don't. And that's the people I want to dive with. I want to dive with the people who, who know when to call it because they're not going to draw me into something where I have to try and save them and put myself at risk. Right, or that we maybe overextend it and put you at risk. We don't want to do that either. And exactly sometimes right. you got to know when to say no. There really is no place for pride in this, is there? Well, you can take pride in your experiences, but you don't want to create a situation where you're going to get somebody else in trouble. Right. Um, it's like the first river dive. Probably the first thing you're going to realize when you get down there, and I think you did, is like, where'd that tree come from? <laughs> Back into a tree, and it's like, I didn't see it on the surface. All I know is I just got my regulator or my tank banged into something, and then you, and then you say, okay, I go forward, now I'm clear. But then you stop and think, okay, what would I have done if that had snagged on something in the back and I couldn't get out? And if you didn't think about it, you really should be. It's like, what do I do if I do get snagged on that tree? Or that monofilament line turns out to be downrigger wire, and it's snagged on something in the back, and now I can't move. It's one of those when you say, well, let me think about this. I can't move, but I could get rid of that snag, which is my BC. You know what I'm saying? It's you got to think about, like you did, where am I? What am I doing? What could happen to me, and can I handle it? Having a plan. Yep. And then when it doesn't go right, get out of the water. You know, 
That's the big one. That's, Knowing when to call it. That's good. Now we keep we keep mentioning the club. Um, how long have you been affiliated with uh, the uh, the Mud Club? Actually, there was five or six of us diving pretty much regular in '73, and Jim Ming uh, was one of the original members. There was five of us at the original meeting, and all the other people have basically moved away. It's not that they quit diving. Because Jim Ming was, we used to call him the dump diver. That guy could fall in a pile of horse manure and come out smiling. I, yeah, he had two trunks. Um, you saw the display we put on up at the library, correct? Yes. All right. I took a big footlocker-type trunk to take that out. He used to have two, but big ones. One he had for his show. And then he had one for his people he would show that was his friends. And you, you name it, he had it in there. Gold, diamond, silver, anything wow. somebody could lose that was of value, he had. He had the affinity that he did his homework. Uh, there was a robbery up in Niles. The guys got a little scared, threw the stuff into the river. All right? So... And we knew where it was at. He came up, volunteered to help the police do the recovery. And they said, thank you, but no thank you. You know, you're not a cop, blah, blah, blah. So he just watched them dive, and then we went back a week later. They didn't recover very much. The difference is he knew the current. He knew where the stuff went after it got into the river. He was that way. And then he researched. I've, I've got a little other pouch of silver dollars. I got thanks to him. He researched direct from a milk truck a long time ago that fell off a bridge. Believe it or not, we went back out there, and I found that pouch with the silver dollars in it from that wreck. That's amazing. It freaking is. I mean, he was good. He's the guy that I told you guys we need to hit the river again up by um, uh, Burdett's Landing. He's the one that found where the original a line was across the river where they used to take the tow barge and some of the bottles he got were the old ceramic and the clay bottle I mean that's old uh, I've not seen anything like that since he left but he did what huh. you guys want it's like it's water I can dive it exactly right and it, it's it is a uh it's an obsession now. Um, to be under the water and breathing off a regulator is, uh, uh, wow, there's something to it that uh, I didn't know what I was missing before I had ever tried diving. You guys have got to come up to St. Clair with us for the fast water stuff. You're going to love it. I mean, just doing a Superman dive, it's like a drift dive, but better. And then when we go up to Sheboygan, you got those three wrecks and 10 to 15 foot that are rubble wrecks, but still better than the Havana. Then we just cut all over and go over to the false play at 60 feet. You still got a ship there. You get into shipwreck diving, and that's what Larry was going to basically filter out. Then what shipwreck diving is like, whoa, Randy new again. Right. Yeah, so looking forward diving, to diving. Yeah, and searching. That's the other aspect, doing research on it. Where are these at? That's a lot of fun. That's what you do in the winter months. Right, um, wait, like what was that one that uh, uh, I just learned about uh, up in Muskegon that rolled over in a storm? Um, it was one of the humpback ships. Oh, the uh, never heard about it. Yeah, it's the it whaleback. Yeah. 
that's the court. And uh, we have so much history here in the Midwest and, and around us in, in uh, southwest Michigan that uh, it's amazing that if you haven't been paying attention, uh, you would miss it. But there's tons of stuff going on around us, or has gone on, uh, that that we can we can learn from and go visit. Well, it's like last year we were trying to look for that bomber again, that PV2 bomber that's right off the uh, the pier, off to the uh, right, 55 feet of water. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's covered up in sand again, but it's like just to get on something that's that old. It, uh, to me, that's the kind of stuff I like. It just, that makes me want to get out there and get wet. Yep. yep. Now, now so you've been in the, you've been a member of the, the dive club since its inception. Um, when, when would you say scuba diving has reached its peak or is it, is it growing or is it ebbing right now? What do you think about that? Uh, well, one, it's expensive. I don't think the younger people do it like we did. But then again, I look back, and it's like I wasn't young, meaning I was not a teenager. Right. Uh, you've got to have money. You've got to have at least $2,000 if you're really going to get even used gear. And that's not even talking dry suit. So I think we sort of priced out the young people. And some of the members actually had their kids. I, I had my daughter come up diving a little bit. Uh, Ed did. I don't see a lot of parents with the kids out there anymore. And the activities with the kids are so expensive, when do you have time to take your kid diving? Or when does he have right. time between soccer and football and you name it? Well, I also have a theory on that, uh, in, in that the culture right now doesn't really show diving. I mean, you know there's diving going on because you can see you know, the photography in the, in the nature films, but you don't see, you know, growing up we had Jacques Cousteau. Right, and he really Mike highlighted Mike. he highlighted that act of diving. I mean, you saw them putting on the tanks, the regulators getting in. Now, with the way they're broadcasting, even the same subject matter, it's like there's no diver. It's it's pretty much just a camera floating through water and somebody narrating. So, it, people need to realize that they can get down and see that same thing that camera does, and it's much better experience to see it firsthand. And I don't think it's coming across to the kids. And the other part is you've got to learn in adverse aspects. I mean, I learned up here before I had visibility, before I had warm water. And you've got to be comfortable in that. Uh, I think the first item when you're starting out a new person is if they're not comfortable environmental-wise, meaning if they're cold, they're not going to pursue it because it's not fun, freezing to death. And sometimes that is true. When they do their open waters in April with an ill-fitting suit, they're not doing themselves or the student any service. They need to pay a little more attention to that. Uh, you're going to get the crazies. I shouldn't say crazies, but you're going to get the, the, the diehards who enjoyed it so much that the cold sort of they overlooked it. And I think that's where you came in. That's where Larry and I came in. Because our first dives were not that darn comfortable. Every time you move your arm, you'd squish the air down your armpit or the water down your armpit. It's a little cold in April. Yeah, running fresh cold water into your wetsuit. Yeah, that's great. Great stuff. Now, you brought that up. How has uh, gear changed? For example, the wetsuit. You know, the, you know the, the, the first wetsuit that Jim and I bought, you know, these are the hyper-stretch, uh, fairly easy to get into. 
Uh, how is that different from like the first wetsuit you drove, you dove in? Well, when we first diving, uh, I used a, a self-inflate navy vest for buoyancy, not a compensator, but a safety. We had the double hose regulators initially, and then we finally went to the single hose with the J valve and no submersible pressure gauge. And then we had weights. Sometimes we'd attach them to the tank, sometimes to our waist, and that was basically what we had. The suits that we had were not custom, they had no stretchy. When shark skin came out, that was wonderful, as opposed to just straight neoprene. Uh, the fit nowadays is tremendously better, and a lot of that is due to that stretchy, the like, what is it, lycra? Lycra? That. Yeah, lycra. Uh, it's somewhat smoother and easier to get on and have more of a, a nice fit. We didn't have that. Uh, the old dry suits, when you did have one, it was like you got in in the umbilical, then you wrapped it up and you tied it. It's like a baggie, and you tied it like you did a baggie. That's how we didn't have waterproof zippers. So from the equipment stage, I'll take what you got nowadays, hands down. The suit I'm driving now is a five-seven stretchy mill type suit. I'm using it in the ice, you know, with our long johns and stuff. That's more than adequate. I couldn't do that with my old suit 25, well, 30 years ago. It just wasn't that form-fitting. So, uh, so the, the fit of the suit is helping that, that warmth. Big time, and the elasticity of it. The bulk, I mean, I've got the warmth and stuff because the double seals on the wrist and the ankles, you didn't have that. You stop that, that flow of water, it makes a big difference. I think the quality of the boots are better because now we have the hard soles you have on the bottom of them way back my first pair didn't have that. Uh, the gloves are more, um, with the seams, they're better. Uh, you got the new fabrics over the tips, so you're not going to wear them out as quick. So part of it, the wetsuit, I think, is, is a big part. I think they've taken a lot of burden out by using your buoyancy compensator. I mean, it's a nice safety feature, especially if you're working deep. Well, actually, I think it's a necessity anymore. Uh, but I love that. Uh, the, having the gauge as opposed to a J valve that could get triggered whenever you're underwater and not realize it until you're, you know, down to 300 pounds and you're going, oh, it's getting a little hard to breathe. And then you realize your J valve's been down for a while. So having the gauge is a real big plus. But by the same token, you don't want to let the equipment take over the responsibilities you have as a diver. You should know what your air is because if you time down in your depth, you know what I'm saying? Yes. You shouldn't be in a position that you have to have a BC to get back up. If you're letting your equipment do your diving for you, what happens when the equipment doesn't work? Exactly. Right, and that goes goes back to what you were talking about before, is being able to deal with some of the adversity that, uh, of when things happen. When Murphy visits, how are you going to deal with it? Um, and uh, I was just thinking, as you were talking about some of the advancements in uh, in the equipment, Maybe part of the reason why it's so expensive for people because uh, they feel that they have to be geared out in all of the best stuff. Uh, uh, let's face it, when you go into a scuba uh, shop, um, they want to outfit you in some of the best gear. And, and while there's nothing wrong with that, that's what they're in business for. Um, maybe the 2000 to $3,000 price range puts it out of somebody's hopes and, and dreams. And, uh, it's like a club. In the old days, if somebody needed something, we usually had spares that we could get somebody rigged up to dive so they'd get the experience. So when they bought something, 
they bought something they wanted and could really use as opposed to something that looked good. Uh, whenever you're taking your classes, hopefully the people rotate around and use different equipment each time to get a feel for what they like. A lot of people don't. They find one rig, they like this one, they keep it. But pool work is totally different than river, pond, lake, you know, ocean. Yes, it is. And I, I would never sell a new student new gear because the attrition rate is two years and they're usually gone. Right. And like they always say, you're always a diver as long as you've got a tank in your in your garage or your closet. Well, the, okay, then that bring, brings up another question. How many tanks do you have in your arsenal? I don't think I've seen you use the same one twice, have you? I've cut down. Some of the guys have six or seven or whatever. I used to have probably the same. Right now yeah. I have three relatively new 80s and a bailout because yeah. I'm not diving like I used to. But the minimum number okay. of tanks I like is two and a bailout. Yeah. Well, that's that's a good deal. That's I'm building my collection. I know Darren is doing the same. Um, a couple yep. of tanks is, is the goal. Uh, slowly, slowly building up the equipment. Uh, I went the route of buying some used, and then I'm slowly adding a piece each week. Uh, Jim, you you just bought a new piece of gear this last week, didn't you? Oh yeah, I bought some new, uh, like the boots that Don was talking about a minute ago. They're a little thicker, and they've got a firmer sole. They're almost, they're more like a shoe or a boot than they are a a, a booty, um, like I used to have. And uh, they were nice. They were really nice. Uh, they felt good, and uh, my toes were pretty comfortable throughout the whole dive. Well, Don, you, you talked about the, the, the tank and that J-valve. Mm -hmm. So uh, so what you're saying is that if somebody bumped that J-valve and they didn't realize it, then that, that pressure would go down. How hard was it to you to reach back and, and adjust that J-valve and use it? It really wasn't because I'd go back and I'd check it during the dive to make sure I had it the right way anyway. But then again, that was just me, and I assume everybody did it. And it normally is not going to get bumped, but if you're doing river diving and you, and you tweak something like you hit that limb or that branch or something like this, you could you could trigger it. But it was easy enough to tell. And at 300 pounds, and if you weren't deep, it wasn't a major trauma because you had time to get up at 300 pounds. If you can't get out of 50, 60 feet of water, you got a problem. But if you're on a wreck, that's a little different, because then you need all the air you can get. But, uh, now, yeah, now you, the J-valve mm -hmm. the, the went away because of uh, gauges coming on. Was it just not possible early on to have the gauges, or just somebody hadn't thought of, of, of actually putting them on the tanks? Probably the latter. I'm, I'm sure people thought about it, but it just wasn't as practical. And I hate to say the, the society we're in wanted to to, um, to keep you safer. They made things different. They also made them a little more expensive, like the gauge. Can I dive without a gauge? And have I? Absolutely. You know, again, if you plan your dive, you know your depth, you know your air consumption. Can you take an 80-cubic-foot tank and go do a 45-minute dive in less than 20 foot of water? I would hope so. Yeah. Now, it would be close for me, but Jim would have no problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's me, that's me, the way it's been I, going, but I, that'll I, change I'm, an, I, I'm that air addict. Something I've been I've been working on. Uh, 
stretching it out a little bit. Well, that's the other aspect that they don't talk about a lot here is physical fitness. Um, to really do it, it's like this last year I've been trying to get out and do a lot more exercise so I don't have a cardiac on anybody when I'm toting my gear back down to the river or back up. A lot of times the gear is what allows people to dive, and more so in the south when you're doing a boat dive. I'm not carrying my gear. I'm not carrying my weight belt. I put it on on the boat. I fall off the boat. I get in. I get rid of it in the boat or, you know, out in the water, get in the boat, somebody else hauls it in. It gives them the illusion that this is really simple to do, and in that case it is. But if they take that and then try doing a beach dive, it changes tremendously. By the time they get in the water, they're exhausted already. Right. Some now I, equipment can get you in trouble. Now, I was reading in a, a recent uh, Dan article, and, and that's the, you would think on the face that scuba diving injuries or uh, fatalities would be drowning. Uh, that's a secondary. The the first is, is the cardiac Um and that kind of shocked me at first, but as I started thinking about it, uh, the average age, I think, is uh, is middle-aged and up, isn't it? I mean, our club, that's certainly the, the, the status of our club. Um, well, yeah, we could call it the geriatric club if we wanted to, because <laughs> more, there's more people that are over 55 than there's under. Right. And that is a concern, and that's another item that... Most of us try to make sure we've got some semblance of, uh, of uh, exercise, and we try to temper what we're doing based on our abilities. Uh, when we were younger, we would get in the water at 7 in the morning. We'd dive till 5 at night, 6 at night. We don't do that anymore. Right. <laughs> we have to have breakfast. We get in the water by 10. We get a tank done. We have lunch around 1 o'clock and get another dive in. So we do two tanks a day. We're happy. And up in Sheboygan, you can dive a tank for two hours, even if you breathe like a big dog. Wow. We definitely have to make it there back there next year. That sounds like a fun trip. That sure it, does. It generally is. It generally is. And, and when I uh, when I had first uh, researched and, and uh, talked to some of you guys before joining the the mud club um one of the things that kind of stuck in my mind is that it's a it's a it's not so much a diving club but it's a social club with a diving problem and uh that really fits um and uh in the you know some of the meetings and it's a it's good to see people and it's it's really a great group of people and i can't recommend enough if anybody is, is new to diving and they uh you know they need some people around because not all people's friends very few of my friends actually dive um, but now I've got diver friends um, that are growing friendships because of diving if that makes any sense I think I talked right into a circle there but um, people that I meet through diving have become friends and it's, it's a great thing I can't, I can't recommend highly enough that people get involved with a local dive club um, it's just an awesome thing. You mentioned that the other day, too. I, I wholeheartedly agree that I don't believe a large majority of the dive establishments around here support clubs sufficiently. Um, if, if a club is active, they're going to use gear and lose gear and upgrade gear more, more frequently. It really amazes me they don't really try to encourage diving clubs like I think they could do. I think there's a little bit of a concern that the diving club is a little bit of a competition to them. I mean, we've talked about in the club, it's a good source for used gear. 
but I don't care if half my gear I buy used from club members, I'm still going to be buying new gear. And if I only die four times, but if I'm in a club and I dive 60 times because of the club, I'm going to buy more from them in the long term. So they're not going to get that big new diver hit of 2,000 in gear that first week, but over the long term, they're going to do much better. Absolutely. Yep. Hey, also, also, I was going to say, when we're talking new gear, if I had to have somebody say, well, what kind of gear should I get? The Probably the item I'd say is the regulator is the most important part because it, it's one of those hard ones again. The first year, you don't know what they're really going to be doing because they should not be doing deep work, deep wrecks or anything like that. They should still be learning. But to me, the regulator, especially one that doesn't free flow, meaning it's got um, ice our capabilities, at least up here, number one item, if you're not going to buy new, buy a real, real good regulator. That's your life. Well, that's my next purchase is the, is the regulator. I've uh, been, been renting the regulators for the last three years, but it's given me a good idea of the different options, and I definitely know that the ice diving is something I want to do, and that's what I'm going to be looking for. Now, and what is your feeling? Pardon me? On that regulator, you'll notice that the ice diving isn't where we normally have our free flows. It's in the cold river just before you get the ice. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I I digress. Well, and we'll we'll talk about the ice dive here in a little bit, but the one thing that we did notice was that it was actually warmer on the ice dive than the river dive. Yeah. Yeah, once you get away from the hole, you went down and you got actually warmer. It absolutely did. The the other thing on the, we talked about the dive club, which I, I think it's good for having people continue to dive for a long amount of time, is that support from the family. And I've noticed that a lot of the members in the dive club have spouses who maybe they don't dive, but they come to the meetings and, you know, we always go out to dinner after the meeting. Uh, and it makes it a social event. And I think that, you know, while some of us are down underwater, there's some, there's some surface assistance and as long as they they have some way to socialize, that enables us to get more diving in. When, when I was younger again, my wife went all the places. She did my tending for my ice diving. Uh, it's like, who do I trust? I trust my wife on the end of the line. <laughs> you know, she made sure my insurance was paid up first. But, uh, <laughs> she was my best buddy out there. You know, I couldn't have done half the crap I did if that wasn't for my wife, well, one, supporting me for for my uh, my habits, because I have a lot of weird habits, <laughs> and she lets me do those. But uh, I, I think it is. I think it's great when the wives come out there. I mean, my wife goes on the trip up north. Uh, she does the uh, the club uh, steak fry. Those are the kind of items that the ladies need to be coming to because they get to see the other ladies and commiserate with. Is your crazy, your wife? Is your husband as crazy as mine? So they have yeah. their tales of whatever, and we have ours. And I, it does work out, and I think that's why our club is good. One of the reasons. Yeah, we, we we've definitely had a blast in the club, and we're glad that you guys had formed the club, and that it's still there. And you know, we're, we're hoping that we can really get uh, get it to grow and get some more new members joining. The more people you have, the better it is. It really is. But that's another item we've noticed, not just in, in diving. The a lot of the places like our, our jump clubs, you, you have the same hardcore people, you have those who drift in and drift out, but you always have that 10, 15% who do all the work, do all the diving, 
and do all the trips in in all the clubs. Larry's been in a couple like bicycle clubs. It's the same thing. You just need a real good hardcore ten or fifteen percent of the people, and enjoy when the people come through it because you know they're going to drift by. Occasionally, you get a gym that stays, and that's great. It, it is, and I, I I agree with what you said about clubs. I've belonged to lodges and other organizations, like I was with the uh, the sheriff's posse, and it seems like all these groups, scouting included, there's a core of a few people who do eighty, ninety percent of it, and there's some that come and go. And if you dwell on the that eighty percent who don't participate and aren't active, you just drive yourself nuts. So you just have to enjoy what it is and hope that you pick up some others. That's true. It's like when we have our steak fry, if, if somebody doesn't show up, that just means there's an extra steak for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we missed that this year. We're going to have to do it a weekend other than the youth fair. Well, when we get up, matter of fact, I think the uh, next month is when we start plotting out some of the dates that we want to get them firmed on the calendar. It's, it's a lot easier to do it if you know in advance when you're going to be doing something. Like the only thing I don't think we've even talked about yet will be, are we going to do an ecology dive next year? And if so, when? Because I, those ecology dives are great. Well, I, you know, I, we had a great. A, if they have yeah. an official one or not, it's like I love going out there looking for that trash. Well, it, it, to me, every dive is an ecology dive, but definitely I, I think we should plan one. And I, I think with anything, th- those type of events, it's you do them regularly. And as long as you you do it annually and you get the word out, it will build and build and build. I, yeah, I, it sounds like we had a number of years where we didn't do it. Yeah, about ten years. Yeah, yeah. I so, know when we were there, my son and I and, and Darren were kind of hanging close there. We had uh, uh, lake property owners and boaters stop and ask us what we were doing and, and thank us for doing it. And uh, I'm sure it was that way with some of the other groups of divers around the lake. Um, you know, so after a few years of getting that going again, um, you know, the the lake owners, the property owners will, will start asking and, you know, kind of looking forward to that again, I would think, because they were more than happy to see us out there uh, on that day. It can, it can definitely be a win-win for everybody. Um, we had a lot of the, the people who volunteered us to use their peers. Well, part of it is to their advantage. If you dive off their pier, you're going to clean up around their piers, which I got no problem at, you know, because sometimes the access are places you normally can't get to. I'd go out there and clean up around your pier for free just for the yep. opportunity to see what I can find. Yep. Oh, definitely. And I think we're going to have to do some scouting. We have, we have some big competition we got to catch up to. <laughs> it's exactly right. Uh, so let's force me to cut into high gear when I do that. You know that. Oh, oh, definitely. Well, Jim will have the boat going by next year. So uh, I, I think we spent two-thirds of our time in the last ecology dive hauling stuff back and forth. So if we have yeah. that boat to throw everything up into, we, we're hoping we can cut some of that time down. Yeah, technique is, is it, and your guys are learning. See, that's the only bad part about working with you guys. You <laughs> pick up the tips too good. <laughs> yeah, we just keep you on your toes. You have to get that much better now. That's yeah. true. Yep. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, well let's uh, go ahead and jump into the news real quick. We'll just cover that. We have a, a, a few news stories uh, that we had uh, during the week. What I did is I went out and did the, the Google search and saw what was in the news. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll just cover the news real quick. I'll have links 
back on the website in the show notes for people who want to get to the original source of the material. And then if everybody could just kind of click on those links and pay those uh, content creators some click love, then uh, everybody's happy. So this week in the news, we had uh, uh, the Coast Guard plan to close down the Lorraine Sea, uh, Great Lakes water levels on the rise, uh, flying scuba tank smashes into a transfer station, a world record was set for the longest open seawater scuba dive, and uh, one of the contestants on The Biggest Loser uh, was a commercial diver, and he no longer gets to dive. So uh, why don't we go ahead and start with that one, and we, it kind of segues into what we talked about earlier with the health, and that on The Biggest Loser, they had one of the contestants, uh, uh, he, you know, that's one of the things he missed, is that he, he, he had to give up scuba diving because of his weight. It can be so, an issue, and it, it can be an advantage sometimes because not overweight, but having some weight on is not bad because you actually stay a little warmer. And we've had some guys in our club who've been a little on the heavy side, but they were tremendous divers because, one, they were in good cardio condition, even if they were a little large. Yeah, because yeah, uh, for those who are watching The Biggest Loser, it's the, the contestant Lance, and he was a former commercial diver. And uh, he lost his livelihood because he was too big. So what well, my guess is it was a liability, and he's probably having problems just uh, sitting in the gear, being healthy, being able to perform his job. Uh, and they, they're estimating that him and his wife, because of their weight of being obese, the situation is costing them over $3 million a year in their lifetimes in additional health care expenses and lost wages. That's amazing. Three million dollars over their lifetime. Uh, now, does it say uh, what what kind of weight he lost? He was a member in The Biggest Loser, right? Well, he, he's actually on the show now. So, oh, he's, he's a current of, contestant. He's a current contestant. So, this was just an article. It was showing some of the background, and you know, I, I did the search and saw where Scuba came up, and I, you know, I had watched it and I missed that. So, I don't know if they've talked about it in the show yet, but. Uh, you know, it, it it kind of brings it home that you know, you know, health, that your health can affect you in in some obvious ways and some not so obvious ways. So uh, it's important. I know that's something I'm working on. Tomorrow, I start my uh, at work every year. We do an annual weight loss competition, and unfortunately, I'm kind of a ringer in that uh, because it's a, it's usually pretty easy for me. It's it's all about for me. It's about discipline, uh, managing portions, and not overeating and getting some exercise and as I get older, uh, and you know, you, you get to promotions at work, and it requires more butt in the seat time. Uh, it just keeps getting harder to be exercised. And you know, I I know that, you know, it's it, the you know, my, my house is on a hill, and I'm I'm hauling that four trips of scuba gear back down to the car. And you know, I definitely wish I was, wish I was in better shape. So that's one of the things I'm going to be doing over the next, you know, eight or ten weeks is getting that health back uh, into a condition to where. You know, I, I, I ashamed to say, but you know, on the on the BMI scale, they got me as obese. I don't feel obese mentally. I'm not obese, but you know, I've definitely got that that weight. And you know, it's taken me 30 pounds of uh, weight on my belt to get me down. You know, I definitely love that for that to be 20, 24, 26. Uh, just just to uh, you know, that that'd be a good sign to me that I'm making some good progress. Yeah, along okay. with the side benefits of some of the other, you know, less air consumption and, and some of those things, too. And, 
boy, that's something we should all pay attention to. Yep. Uh, and then uh, we, there's this, this story about this scuba tank that went into a transfer station. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and pull that up. Well, that, well, I got that one coming up. Let's go back to the uh, the, the Coast Guard Loran C. Uh, I have to honestly say I thought Loran C was already dead and gone, but it's still out there. So it is. The U.S. Coast Guard uh, announced Thursday a publication of Federal Register. It plans to cease broadcasting in the North American Loran C signal February 8th. Uh, as a result of technical advancements during the last 20 years and the emergence of U.S. global positioning systems, Lorancy is no longer required by the Air Force, transportation sector, or nation security interests, and is used only by a small segment of the population. Uh, the president this year in the 2010 budget completely eliminated any support of the Lorancy, and they also said that they don't—they're not planning to seek funding for a backup system. So. Uh, uh, Don, have you had experiences with using the Loran C? Actually, we we have Loran C, and a lot of our coordinates from the old wrecks and stuff are still in uh, LC. Uh, there is a conversion you can use from that GPS, but uh, it's not always 100%, and you can be off 50 foot and screw you up really good. But uh, oh, yeah, yeah, we the... use Loran C in the old days, uh, but everybody does use GPS. So I, I'm not going to say, you know, I'm not going to cry any crocodile tears as long as I got the GPS. Yeah. yeah. Right. I, and I, you you were talking 50 foot. Uh, 50 foot in our visibility is the difference between uh, hitting your wreck and, and uh, totally missing it, isn't it? It is for rubble wrecks uh, because you just don't see anything. So 50 foot can mean a lot. And I've been out there dragging for the Havana years ago. And yeah, some days you're out there dragging, you're not diving. Yeah, but in the in the case of Loran C, how accurate could you get with that system? Actually, you could get pretty darn close, because uh, generally you're going to have you know one section of the wreck is going to be a longer than the other one, and as long as you went back through, you realized where it was, you'd always take your reading splitting the middle of it. So if it gave you some variable, then you you, you you've got that in your favor. Okay. You always pick the middle part of the wreck when you make your coordinates. So when you drop your anchor, even if you're not in the middle, you're going to be close to it because that's where you started. Yeah, with, with GPS, they're now getting that error down to where it's literally just a few feet. So well, depending on what the Air Force wants to do, they have a code in there that they can reduce the magnitude of error that you have, and nowadays it's, it's down to less than five feet on most of your rigs. I mean, it's repeatable within five feet. So that, that should be enough to find uh, most of the sites you've been to before. Well, yeah, one of your topics was on uh, GPS, and uh, the newer systems they have out there using the sonar buoys, they're down and accurate to five centimeters. But that is not the type of material that you're going to have with our budget. Right. And I already talked to uh, Jim earlier about the poor man's version and how it works. Works fine. Tell, tell uh, Darren, tell Darren uh, 
those two systems. It's it's really pretty interesting um, and, and, and genius. Really. And it works. I've got a, a Garmin I use for the airplane, but I also have a remote antenna. Well, obviously you can't use a GPS on the water because of the, the water will block the signal. But what you can do is make your antenna float. If you've got a nice cable and a booster for the signal, you can then encapsulate your GPS, and if you want to make one with the buttons, then you can actually take it down with you, do your button pushing. And it works. There, there's absolutely no doubt. Now, you're basically limiting yourself to if you're in a pond where you have no wave current and I've got a taut line, I'm pretty much in line with my signal. But if i got a river and I've got scope of the line that's 25 feet to the left, my GPS reading is going to have to be compensated for. But you can factor that in. But it works. You can do it. Another cheapy way is you take the GPS that's encapsulated, you have it up near your buoy or your flag, when you're at a location you want, you grab it and you bring it down to you. It breaks the signal to your GPS, and then when you let it back up, the signal re-energizes or is acknowledged. It gives you a waypoint on your GPS. So you just marked where you were at if you had a treasure. Uh, so, so you can see that break in the signal will, will be Absolutely. recorded. Right. And uh, if you have the one that you hook up to your computer, you can then plot your waypoints, and you already have a surface map part of your GPS, I can pretty much map my path. Excellent. And it, it works. They've been doing this since GPSs came out, and if you looked on scuba board and did the research, you find a lot of the talk was back in 2002, 2003, 2004 for how to do this. But uh, the new sophisticated systems work great, but you're talking big bucks. You can make the old ones that you've got work very well. Yeah. Oh, definitely going to have to give that some try this year. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That, yeah. So uh, that story on the tank, it, uh, it it comes from Boston. And what happened is scuba tank went flying in the air and smashed in the wall at a recycling center. Uh, uh, as the story goes, a, a man discarded the tank at the transfer station uh, the week before, and then a, a ploy removed the tank from discarded pile and put in the main building because it required special handling. It seems that while it was in that that building, it it got tipped over, the valve came off, and then it shot through a wall and hit a chair. Could you uh, imagine that that thing going right by you? They had a, a good thing on YouTube and on the scuba board of the one that did that in Florida this year. Took out the whole side of the wall at the compressor station. Interesting. The, a, a single tank took out the wall. Yeah, but this was not a normal tank, though. This was a big tank. I'll oh, find so like site. a, it, it was a, a cascade, tank. then. And I'll, yeah. I'll see if I can find that. It's quite interesting, though. Uh, yeah, that'd be interesting to see. Now, what I thought this was, what was odd, is at the end of the article, they say no employees were in the office at the time. Officials say the man who dropped the tank, tank off, who dropped off the tank, had been told in the past not to do so. So I, I thought that was a little odd. I mean, if you've been told you couldn't drop it off, I mean, you just kept trying. Well, it seems why like would you drop, if it was a scuba tank, why would you do it and have air in it? Well, well exactly. Your valve. I mean, the valve, well, if, even if the tank didn't pass hydro, the valve is probably good. You're well, not I, I a good valve. Well, and I know around here the... Uh, you know, if you've got an aluminum tank, that's, I mean, it might not be worth a lot of money, but, you know, you probably buy a candy bar or a lunch out of it. Oh, yeah. 
Well, that that brings up is was it a stolen tank? Oh, you know, maybe he, maybe he grabbed it and uh, it wasn't even his to drop off. Or was it a scuba tank? Could have been a compressed no. air cylinder, or it could have been a fire extinguisher. Just uh, under pressure. Well, I, I guess another way of looking at it, they said a recycling center, so maybe he did get paid for the tank, and maybe he made sure it was. Uh, or so you who would pay the four dollars or six dollars to have it full, but I mean I know the tank's heavier full, so maybe it's a, a way of getting paid more for the aluminum. <laughs> uh, <laughs> who, who knows? People will come up with uh with different I've heard of different some strange things, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So and then uh uh there was a world record set for the longest open saltwater scuba dive. Forty eight hours. Can you imagine how pruny you're gonna look? Yeah, it was uh, Gil, and boy, it, it seems like I always find the articles of the name, Tarwanigan of Lambok, Indonesia. And then it has, uh, oh, that, that, that's the, the author, I'm sorry, I, I just gave the, the writer the story. It was Will Goodman from the UK, 33, a TDI advanced trimix instructor and Buddy Rebreather instructor, and, and he's over in the UK at the Blue Martin Dive Shop. 48 hours, 9 minutes, 17 seconds underwater, setting a world record for the longest open water, saltwater dive. And like, like you said, Don, I mean, he, you, you'd have to prune up an extreme amount in 48 hours. Wow. And even if you were doing dry, you're going to be, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, it said it was a combination of a closed-circuit rebreather and open-circuit scuba. But but even so. Well, uh, I can see why, because he might want to use the rebreather because it gives him warming. That's like breathing warm air. You know that, right? Yes, yes. All right, so that would replenish your body heat, and the open scuba would take it away from you, so that might be one of the reasons they did that. Uh, also, uh, some of your rebreathers, what, what kind of... Uh, Time can you get on a on a, a setup? A lot of time, a lot of time. Yeah, like and he was Bob's out there diving. Remember, he's got that small O2 bottle, and you've got all those extra tanks. That extra tank he carries with him—that's his bailout in case he had something go wrong with the system. We can get many hours on a rebreather, especially shallow. Did did they say the depth on him? Uh, it said uh, was submerged to a depth exceeding six meters. For the first 20 meters of the record, so I don't know how what six meters of the first 20 meters. So maybe they they don't start counting it until he hits six meters. Uh, because I was just looking at the at the time, you figured he's going to have to be way under 30 feet, otherwise his accumulated time would have been deco. Yes. Yeah, and it, it, it looks like uh, they had sponsorship from a vendor, O3, and they provided him with a custom-made 7-millimeter wetsuit. I wanted it custom-made, all right. <laughs> they for got entertain- warm water tubes in there, too. Yeah, for entertainment, he had an underwater housing for his iPod. And his support crew entertained him and supported him throughout. So, uh, what, what kind of entertainment does your support crew have to provide for? for well, you've seen for, most of the guys on deco. Well, you haven't been on deco lines yet. No. When you're out there for an hour, a lot of the guys have their iPods. They got the underwater ones now. 
wiring uh-huh. them have a real nice set. And you can actually take a paperback and read it while you're on the deco line. Obviously, you're not going to use it once you get up, but at least it beats doing nothing. Right. So you actually I, read books. At one time, I thought, you know, why would somebody want to take an iPod down with them? Uh, you know, that's just kind of killing it. But uh, l- listening to some of the, the, the deco times that these guys have got, you know, you're close to watching a full-length uh, motion picture uh, just just hang in there. Otherwise, you'd be staring off into the blackness and uh, driving yourself crazy, I would have guessed. And that's what some of the guys are doing now. They've, they've got those iPods uh, that you can actually do the movies on. It's yep. easy to encapsulate those. They start them, and they, they've got something to do for that hour or two hours, depending on what they're doing. Well, that those, those, iPods, yeah, those iPods can hold 48 hours or, or a lot of Scuba Obsessed podcasts. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get the plug in. Uh, so, but I mean, forty-eight hours. I, mean, I have a hard time staying awake up above forty-eight hours. I, you know, there, there's a couple nights of sleep that were missed there. Well, I, I was thinking more on the line of a pit stop, you know. Well, <laughs> uh, there's those that that uh, maybe that, that was they the... pee in their wetsuit, and those that lie about it, right? So, uh, That's true. The beard part I wasn't too much concerned with. <laughs> no, yeah. I wasn't either, but it's got to stay sort of clean. Well, the, the other oh, thing is maybe goodness. that's the, the custom part of the wetsuit. Yeah, a zipper in the back. <laughs> yeah, like a couple big buttons. Or maybe it was like a red long john. A farmer john. Or a, yeah. Yeah. a union suit. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the flap. Yep. Uh, well, we're dive buddies, but I'm not zipping that up for you. you got to find another way to do that one. Oh my goodness! Oh, gosh, and then uh, yeah, th- there were a few fatalities this week that I, uh, that we won't go into cover, but it just brings up a good opportunity to start talking about you know dive flags. Uh, there was a, I found an interesting website on uh, dive flags, uh, uh, dive-flag dot com, and it had dive flag laws. So it's a good opportunity this time of year as people. I mean, we're we're still in the winter up here in the north, but uh, we're we're not too long from the spring. So if you've got buddies out there who are who have boats, and quiz them and ask them if they know what a dive flag means. Because I mean, that eco dive we had, uh, you know, we had boats that you know they were within five ten feet of the dive flag. And if you're up there in St. Clair, where you've got the Canadian borderline, where you've got traffic both ways, can't forget you got to fly the Alpha flag also. Now, now, what's the Alpha flag? That's the one that's blue with a swallowtail. Okay. That's the international flag. And at one time, they almost tried to make us have to have the Alpha flag in addition on the Great Lakes. Yeah, I, th- I think in Michigan, and, and I actually copied the law, and I'll have a, a link to that one in, as well. Uh, I think they had a section that talked about that you could you could use that, or at least that they wanted that on the boats. So for just, just and you can go to the website if, for your local state, but for Michigan, according to Michigan Department of Natural Resources rules for the water, divers should use common sense, avoid high boat traffic areas, and always display a diver down flag when diving. Uh, a detailed law for Michigan, uh, we've got we'll have a link to it. Uh, any person diving or submerging in waters of the state with the aid of a diving suit or other mechanical device shall place a buoy or boat in the water at or near the point of submergence. The buoy or boat shall bear the, a red flag not less than 14 inches by 16 inches, which 
I don't know, is my dive flag that big? I was just thinking, I don't think mine is. Uh, it should be. The standard ones that we get at Wolf's, or at our dive shop, should meet the minimum requirements for the state. Okay. So, okay, because I saw that. I'm going to have to go out and measure it. Maybe i got to stretch it a little bit. But uh, so That also I, reminds us that that's why we don't dive the rivers during the summer, because we'd be blocking the river. Right. Cause, cause it, yeah, because the, ne the next section... Uh, the flag should only be used while actual diving is in progress, and a vessel, vessel shall not operate between 200 feet of the, the buoy dive flag. So in a lot of the rivers we're in, 200 feet would effectively close that body of water. Right, and the coasties will come by and pull your flag and say, please don't do that. <laughs> with with, with you on that. it, though. <laughs> in, yeah, and in, then, in, in such a case, what do they suggest? They suggest uh, posting it on the shore in... At your entry when, point, or do they? When we dive, when we dive St. Clair, for example, you one uh, flag is hazardous. Uh, we put a flag at the entry and a flag at the exit point, and it could be two miles down. Okay. Or we'll have yep. multiple flags near the the um, the rails to come back up, so you're not toting one, but uh, you've got it posted and it's within ten feet of the the, the, the river line or the shoreline. Okay. Now, now, when we go down to the boat section, they talk about that if you you've got the diver flag running, it's uh, they have to stay 200 feet away from the diving operations. But if you have the alpha flag, it's 100 feet. But if you look at it, pass left, you're 100. If you pass right, you're 100. So you're 200 feet. Oh, is it? Is that saying? okay? Yep. Yeah, because the diver's got to be within 100 feet of the flag, and the reason they say 200 is if I make a circle, I've mm -hmm. got my 200. So. If if they always say 100 feet away, I'm going to be safe. Because I should be always within 100 feet of my flag. Uh, that that certainly makes sense. And and people do use your flag as training pylons, especially for the little water scooters, training pylons for solemn skiers. And we've actually had a, a diver in Lake Cora come up, and a skier came through, and he ducked, and the ski got him right under the, where the regulator is attached with the tank. Oh, my goodness. Came back goodness. close to getting pronged because they were using it for a turning buoy. Yeah. Well, what, what prompted me to bring up the dive flag articles, I, there was uh, a story about uh, about some divers in Asia, and there were two divers out. Uh, they were... F they were with. The, it seemed to be just a scuba area. Didn't It wasn't clear whether they had dive flags or not. But there was a charter boat that went right through the middle of them, chopped one guy in half, and they haven't found the other one. So, yeah. So it, it's it's always good just to remind everybody that you know what the dive flag means, and that it's it's not there for decoration. It's not a, a picnic or a party we're having out there. That there's we got divers underwater, and then we have to have the same courtesy of making sure that we don't leave that flag there in the water if we're not diving. Correct. Uh, and, th and then the uh, the last story I had, and it's it, it was a I, I saw it, and it was mostly anecdotal. Uh, I'm saying that wrong, but there was uh, there's some observations that in the in the Great Lakes here, our water levels have been down for years, that it's been coming up, and there was some two or three stories out there where it's uh, we we've had kind of a wet fall and wet winter, and that the water level is actually rising. So that'll be interesting to watch this year and see if that is a trend that continues. It'll be interesting. I know there's still a lot of discussion with opening up the river, the let it flow down the Mississippi, and you know how much it drains the lake. And then we've got the lake, a 
Port Huron, uh, they dredged that out, and now they got a problem because they're losing a lot more water than they ever had planned on. And we're helping drain our own lakes. Yeah, I, I saw that they had done that, that they had cut a little bit farther into the bedrock than they thought, and that just increased. And, and when you look at these numbers, they're just something I can't Nominal. comprehend. Yeah, the millions Nominal. of gallons per hour more. So I know the Great Lakes are huge, but that over time has to add up. And then we've also got some of these invasive species that are are coming in up through the Chicago waterway. It was funny you mentioned that a little bit. There was an article tonight uh, in the paper talking about how far the sharks are coming up the Mississippi now. Like the bull sharks? or Uh-huh. Yeah, they've caught some now that are over 200-something miles up from the from the ocean. Now, now do you think that this is uh, something that's been going on all along and that we just didn't catch it or find it? Or is this that they're being drawn in and then maybe getting used to the fresher water? I, I believe it's, it's the latter. They're becoming more acclimated to it. Because if you live in that environment, they spawn or they they have their birthing, and they're used to the brackish, they're going to be able to tolerate it a lot more. Hmm. That's interesting. And I uh, thought I didn't have to worry about that. No, I was kind of... That, that's one of the great things about diving up here. You know, we got plenty to worry about with the low visibility and obstructions, but you know, at least I wasn't counting on some shark gnawing on my leg. Yeah, I was planning on being the top of the food chain around here, but maybe <laughs> yeah. not. We, we we always had that. You get that story about every five years where somebody pulls a prawn out of a pond, but yeah, you know, I'm always convinced that that's you know somebody a couple of weeks before has, has thrown it in, and you just happen to be the lucky guy to catch it. Well, every nice. year you hear about the shark up there in the Saint, or up in the uh, the locks up there in the Sioux. Almost every year you hear one. Of course, that's because they got it on the boat. They toss it over just to make some uh, some conversation. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was I was holding my breath for a minute. No, wait, wait a minute now. Yeah, for real. This whole diving well, we thing's had, not for me. <laughs> what was it last year? The year before, we had three alligators in this area. Uh, one of the guys in the club took a picture on the Galeen River. He says, I had to take a picture because you guys are going to think I'm lying through my teeth. And he's out there kayaking, and there's a freaking alligator sitting on the log looking at him, so he took the picture of it, brought it into the club meeting. It's like, damn. And I talked to Dave. His his girlfriend was coming to see him, had a four-foot one across the road in front of her, going to the swamp near his house. And then there was one in the paper. Now, these are pets that got too big for people and they turned them loose? Is there, I hope so. Uh, is, is there a, there's no possibility they can winter up here, is there? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think they're going to lift to the ice. But that and, four footer, I legs, can understand letting him loose. Well, that's the their legs are too small. short to migrate very far, I would think. But that's all the more reason to do an ice dive. Which that brings us on to our, our next topic, which is the uh, the Singer Lake Ice Dive. Uh, so, uh, Don, why don't you go and let everybody know how that got put together and how it went. Well, these two new guys that we know that are pretty recent to the club, they were just gung-ho to go ahead and get wet. They were in withdrawal. So we found this one little lake out there we dived. It's uh, got a real muddy bottom, appropriate to the name of the club. And 
they actually brought their own chainsaw out there that actually worked, which was really good, because doing an ice cut is really awkward. Uh, it was amusing to watch them cut the hole in the ice, and of course, a lot of people forget it's a triangle, not a circle. It's a lot easier to get out of a triangle. Uh, <laughs> the ice was not bad. It was four to five inches, top layer, an inch of sort of slush, and then two inches of frosted ice. And um, as a side note to that, I put a, a chart in the uh, newsletter this week of the ice thicknesses recommended by the state, in this case Minnesota, for uh, safety. And for a group doing a group ice side like we want to do either next weekend or the week after, is a minimum five inches if we're going to have us, the guys out there like we did. Um, again, the advantages of diving during the winter is you don't have the boat traffic, you don't have the runoff, visibility is normally nicer, and if you dive the ice later in the year, the fish are much more docile because the oxygen content is down, and not that you would ever put them in your goodie bag when they're right up there nuzzling against you, but it could happen, and I heard cases like crayfish suddenly appear in people's houses two days after a dive. Well, yeah, isn't, isn't that odd how a crayfish I, could have found... <laughs> and got out of the basement, too, and climbed up at, you know the stairs, it's like... <laughs> It, it, I, I I still don't know. I'm going to blame the dog on that one, but uh, he 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 lost a claw for his bravery. But we did inter- reintroduce him to the river. So, but uh, the ice dive went well from the aspect. Uh, we had a beautiful day. We actually had some sunshine, no wind, which is a major factor. Uh, I will say that all the hardy souls that were out there were wetsuit divers. None of this pansy stuff for us. Um, and it was still a very successful dive. Uh, we did it the right way, meaning one diver in the water, one diver out, one tender, and everybody rotated through. Everybody got out before they got cold, uh, filled back in the hole. And as a side note, I have some other items that we'll do next time as we're adding on to your uh, litany of items to remember to do next time. It was a good That's time. I had, I had a blast. I enjoyed it. I, I- I, I had a blast, and uh, you know, it, it was amazing. And, and for those who really want to see it, uh, we're going to have some video that we're going to post out there on YouTube, and we'll have links on the website. The website's www.scubaobsessed.com. And since we're talking about the, the Mud Club, you can see the Mud Club website at mudclub.scubaobsessed.com. And Mud Club is the Michigan Underwater Divers. The A-team. The A-team. So that, that, that was awesome. Uh, Jim, what did you think about that, your, your first experience under the ice? Well, it was, it was, uh, it was a different, different world. Um, the, the deal on that was, and I had talked to Don and, and Darren, you too, about it. Um, I just wanted to get in with the ice. Um, I had no plans of actually going under the ice. I thought that was beyond our realm. We were talking about baby steps earlier. That was one of mine that I thought was a, a good idea, and and uh, that's the way we did it. We planned it. We dove the plan. It was to to roll over on my back and look up through the ice hole. Um, it it was very surreal. The bubbles that I could see stuck under the ice outside, uh, going off to the to beyond the depths of my vision. Um, the water clarity. Uh, we had better visibility then than we do in the middle of the summer. Um, those divers from down south won't understand how much it's it's appreciated when we can see out to 10 or 12 feet and beyond. Uh, 
it, it was just it was enough to get you you stoked um you know from cutting through the hole with the chainsaw to, to jumping in um when most people were inside with their feet up by the fire was a, a, a totally uh, an experience that brought you to life. That's the only way I can describe it. Uh, I, I have to agree. That that was absolutely amazing. Uh, you know, it was counterintuitive. That first, you know, here's a hole in the ice, and you know, uh, my my grandmother had two brothers die falling through the ice. So, you know, you've got that kind of in the back of your mind that this is something that's dangerous and you don't do. You have hypothermia, you die from getting cold, and who's crazy enough to jump into a hole in the ice? And obviously, it's us. Not uh, crazy, adventurous, and diving for the plan. That's the whole key right there, though. The plan, escapade. It, it was great, and well, like Jim had said, the visibility. We dove Singer Lake in June, and along the shore we had maybe six, eight feet of visibility. In the middle where we were, there the visibility wasn't more. I, I, I there's times when I held my gauge up to my mask and I couldn't read it. it, it there was just no visibility, and it was cold. I felt colder in July than I did in the ice dive. Yeah, and that, that's that was my experience too, and I, I can't totally understand, understand why that is when, you know, I, I can hit the 33, 34 degree water in a wetsuit now and uh, not feel as cold as I do in the middle of July when I hit, what, 50 degrees, 54, something like that. Oh, um, definitely. It's, it's just, uh, it's it's different, totally different. And I think if I had brighter lights, we'd have had even bigger visibility. I just didn't have enough light down there to see farther. And, of course, like we talked about diving the plan, you know, we get down there and you're thinking, wow, if I only had 50 feet. <laughs> right. Right. Because there is so much more to, to see. And, you know, the, the light, while it wasn't dark down there necessarily, um, the light that would filter through was totally different. Um, we had sun up there, and, and you could you could see that it was up there, um, but it was a filtered, just a different a different environment altogether. Although it was the exact same location we'd all been in a couple of times over the past year. Yeah. And then you you hid your bottles there in that one spot, so you go back and get them later on. I did. I did. I, I put them over in that one corner, and, uh, you know, you guys didn't find them, so I'll be able to go back and get those again. Well, at least I did bring up the rusty can you put there and that other little thing. <laughs> but yeah, that Donald's... was a decoy. Nothing more than a decoy, and it worked. <laughs> yeah. Now, now uh, thank, uh, we, we would never have done this without Don, so special thanks to Don. And, Don, could yeah, you yeah. kind of explain a little bit of the that role? Because, you know, we, what we kind of glossed over is, you know, we had the, the we we were tied to a line, and so we had a handler up above, and then we had the diver down below. What are some of the things that that handler up above has to be looking for? Oh, uh, the key item uh, one is you want to have a good attachment point on your harness. Uh, a lot of people now have the, the built-in D rings, uh, but since that's your lifeline home, uh, it would really be good to wear a safety harness beneath it or at least have good webbing that's not going to come off. So that's number one. Uh, the other one is make sure you have a good communication with your tender so you both understand what you want. And once you get an ice diver two down as both a diver and a tender, 
then you can appreciate the job. Uh, the tender, it's a very boring job. You can get distracted. But by the same token, that's probably the most important job of the person out there because he, you have definitely got somebody's life in your hands. Uh, the key item there is make sure you arrange the signals that you want to have with your tender. Uh, generally, it's just the one pull, two pull, three pull. Uh, one pull would be as to, you know, give me some slack. Two pulls would be take up the slack. Three pulls is haul my butt in. And that means just that. If you get the three, or even if you think you get the three, haul them in. And that's always the rule. Defer. If in doubt, pull them out. That's the easiest way to do it. Uh, the other item is securing your lines. You want to have two different mechanisms. So if you were to drop your line or the guy have a heart attack and fall in the water, your line doesn't go with him. You want to have a secondary tie-off point that prevents the line from getting pulled into the water. And that can be a secondary person or an actual hole with another grabber on it that keeps the line from following them. Uh, it would be best to have a floating line. And we taught that if you did lose your air, what do you do? Not air, obviously, then you're in trouble. But if you lost the line, you come straight to the surface and you stay. Because then the backup diver is going to go straight out, do a circle on the bottom of the ice with his rope. If you stayed there, the rope should catch your hand, and then you can find your way back. Those are the important items. Well, I also like that uh, that prepping of the ice or that pattern. With the spokes. Yeah, ideally, you'd be able to take your shovel out and make rings at some distance. Uh, if you're going to shallow diving, you're not going out far. Every 10 foot, you do a ring around your ice hole, and then you bring spokes from the outer ring all the way back in. And when you're down looking up, and if you have any type of sunlight penetration, you can actually see that pattern, and you know the way to go home is follow the spoke. And that'll take you right back to the hole. That's one of those aspects, though. You've got to know where you're at to go home. If you didn't, that's when you're going to stay at the top of the ice and let the safety diver find you. The reason you come to the top of the ice or right under it is to conserve your air because now you're no longer at depth breathing lots of air. You're going to maximize your time. And the urge to look around is going to be very great. You just have to curtail that urge, wait for the safety diver to get you. That, that would be a terif <clears throat> terrifying couple of minutes there, um, provided... It would be very awkward. Yeah. Um, so let's make sure that we uh, we do everything we can to not ever be in that position. Um, because it is it is serious and it is dangerous because it's an overhead environment. Um, uh, not to be taken lightly at all, I don't believe. No, and no, that's why were we doing anything than a straight down within... 10 feet of the hole, you would have had a secondary air source. I don't right. go in there and go roaming around without two tanks, two regulators, independent. The yeah. octopus is great, but if you have a free flow, it's going to burn your tank and nothing short. Right. So, for, for serious stuff that you're going to go down and look around as opposed to straight, I can almost see you the whole time. You want a redundant air supply and redundant regulator system. That definitely makes sense. Now, uh, I did a little bit of research since our dive that that day, and I actually have uh, my father-in-law, I discovered, had dove in that lake in the, the mid-60s, and he actually saw that car, that Model T you're looking for. Like I said, if you've got any kind of fix, I have looked at that. My understanding, it's in the west side, north, 
The only thing I found over there is 50-gallon drums, which I'd advise you to stay away from. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Anytime you find big collections of, of drums in a lake or quarry, it's you'll probably notice there ain't no fish around them. Ugh. There's a reason for it, and you want to stay away from it, and you don't want to get into the water. We do over a place like that once and then found out they had a dioxin spill. Oh, Not no. Cool. Not cool. Yeah. No, it's it's but, definitely not. But it, it, I think it is in that, that section that you're talking about. Uh, he said that there used to be a boat ramp. And uh, I think he, he said there's something about it's a winery there now. So, uh, uh, but he, he he saw it. And he, he was saying that when they dove, they didn't even dive with wetsuits. They just had a reg and a, uh, a tank, and then down they went. And, you know, he saw it, but it was, he said it's been well over 40 years. Well, you get a real good location. We'll drag his butt out there and say, all right, where do you think you were? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I might that, have to bribe him. That's the duct tape. Yeah. That's the duct tape. We can take whatever it takes. We get him out there. Yeah, well, we'll have to figure out how to how to get him out there. The only thing I was looking at is, is now we got to go, because I, I was thinking this time of year is perfect. It's clear underneath there. It's way on the other side of uh, of of the lake, so you know, like when Jim and I dove, uh, you know, we we didn't have a boat. I mean, a boat would have made it much easier. But you know, it seems like on the ice, you can walk all the way over there, and then we just you could go right down over the spot where you think it is. Oh yeah. So that oh, that's we can get a good fix. It'll be worth a try. Yeah, def- definitely, it'd be it'd be something to try, and maybe we can get some of those the club members who are out who are out on winter retirement. Back in the water. <laughs> yeah, right. Get get everybody back in. So that that was definitely a, a great dive. I, I can't wait to get it. I, I I mentioned it to my wife that we could go again this weekend, and I got the stare of death. So, uh, not not this weekend, but I think definitely next weekend. Well, I put in the newsletter for the twenty third, which should, uh, at the dive meeting we'd be able to find out who's interested. And, yeah, uh, I'm in. I think there's three of us anyway. Well, that's all. That's all we need. We got. We got the three, <laughs> and then uh, and then we have to give special thanks to our photographer and videographer uh, Josh. Jim's son was out there, and that that was great. Yeah, it's always good to have support personnel. I mean, uh, it, it, it's it's really I, I shouldn't say a necessity, but it sure makes your life a lot easier when you forget the one item, and somebody can run back and get that for you. Uh, the other item we'll remember next time is we'll bring sleds. That makes your yeah, life yeah. a little easier. Well, and then we need on a, the other side. That spud would have been handy too. We didn't think of that. Yeah, we'll make sure we bring the spud. Right. Especially for resetting the the hole. And like I said, I got some items. We'll tape off the area, so it'll be. We'll use uh, one gallon jugs, half full of water. We'll put them in the four corners. I've got the uh, fluorescent tape. We'll put around it. So when we leave, at least. It'll be marked off, so we won't have anybody accidentally wander to our area. Yeah, yeah. that's a that's a great idea. I, I think I think that that hole froze up pretty quick. That was a a cold yeah, night we had. Yeah. So definitely looking forward to that. Okay, the the, the, 23rd. the last twenty third. There we go. So uh, we've got those photos. Those photos are also out there at the the Mud Club website so you can uh, pick that off the show notes at uh, scubaobsessed.com uh we just had a few items of gear 
I, I think probably since we're running all along, we'll skip that GPS again. But just to kind of cover that, I, I had followed that. That was announced at the DEMA show this year, uh, that company in a prototype. And I'm, I'm always a little skeptical when people talk about new technology like that. Uh, being in the technology business, we get a lot of vaporware. So, uh, but but it's just so interesting to me, such a draw that I have to follow it. And uh, this week they had a new press release saying that everything's on track, that they're going to see something here in the second quarter. Uh, they'll have some initial rigs. And also they're saying that there's a lot of interest from other equipment manufacturers. And to me, that's where it makes sense. You know, who wants to have one more piece of gear, but if you could... And maybe that's an incentive to upgrade your dive computer if you had that that GPS. I, I also saw it as uh, Don. Had you seen that that unit? Uh, I'm not sure which one. Was it the Sea Guide? That's a diver handheld GPS. That's probably the standard. The what they call the Navmate. That one was one that came out a year or so ago. But that sort of went by the wayside. It's one of those um, engineering items that didn't meet expectations. Ah. Uh. Uh, this one, and, and and again, I've been bit by my not having enough links here, so uh, I'll, I'll have to get that that back again. Yeah, uh, maybe we'll talk the name about. Of it? Uh, if somebody does a song and a dance, I can probably look it up uh, real quick. They <laughs> sent they sent a press release. I'm getting more organized, really. Uh, the the well, I look for that. Uh, we have the other. The other item, you know, we've been talking about cameras, and I just this must be the year for inexpensive cameras. Uh, there's a company out there, and they had a, you know, we talked about last week with the the uh, liquid uh, camera, the one where it had the the camera and the the goggles. Well, here's another one again this week, and it was uh, the the goggles with a camera and a snorkel. And uh, the resolution was 1280 by 960, and you could go down to 30 meters. And the oh. price for the mask and the snorkel was just a little over $100. Wow. Yeah, so I, I just... That's when those sounds too good to be true? Well, well exactly. And... Uh, I'll have a link on the website of the. Uh, it was a retailer, so you know I found it in several spots, and it was all the same press release. So, you know, I don't know if it's disposable. Is it just going to fall apart and disintegrate, or is it something that's uh, going to continue on? But uh, the specs didn't look too bad. Uh, uh, underwater scuba scuba camera mask and snorkel came in a choice of. Uh, now they they call it blue. It is. <laughs> I'm hoping that's a typo. I did not aware that's a color. Uh, they had blue, transparent, and orange. Uh, ABS and rubber. Uh, it's a one megapixel. So, I mean, some people are going to think that they need a little bit better resolution. But for me, you know, if, especially if it's on the mask, I don't think that's going to be something I'm going to be taking long videos. But it's great to document a site or a location. Yeah. Right. And at our level, you know, it's it's exciting to just be able to to have a photo or or something to be able to share with friends and family that don't. I mean, I, I can't tell you how excited I get over over looking at some of these old videos or uh, uh, pictures of uh, our dive trips. You know, and uh, it just it lets you relive that whole thing. Uh, I know Don is into uh, has got quite a photograph collection of uh, all of his dive dive trips, uh, seen some really great pictures. 
but I can't wait to be able to take some photos from under the surface that uh, that will let me share that uh, even more. Uh, I don't know if it's for me or for others, but for either way, I can't wait to do it. Definitely. Uh, the, the interesting thing is also how this, this camera worked. They, it says a magnetic ring, and I, I didn't see anything, so I don't know if it's a ring that's on your finger. But uh, it says you brush the magnetic ring around the power icon to power the camera on. To capture a photo, you then brush the ring on the camera for one second. The scuba mask will vibrate once, and this means you've taken a photo. Then to capture the uh, video, you put the ring next to the camera for two Mississippi seconds. I'm, I'm imagining they're saying one Mississippi, two Mississippi. When the scuba mask vibrates twice in a row, this indicates that you have begun filming. So, but at the amount of uh, uh, memory it has, I'm, I'm going to run out of air, especially me, before <laughs> I run out of uh, of recording. So I could just about turn it on on the surface and then come back up. But the depth is what I thought was surprising for that price to get to 30 meters. Doesn't really sound logical. Yeah. So I mean, a cheap I mask will run you that much. Well, th- that's it. You got a mask and a snorkel. So. Yeah, you know, there's got to be a catch. Either that, or I mean, that the, maybe the the cameras just don't cost that much anymore to make. They're getting everything on one board, and you know, memory's all built in, and maybe it's not. And they and I saw a picture of it, and it had a little USB cable for downloading the 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 video. So I don't know. I'm I, I'm I'm going to be tempted. I'm I'm tempted by so many of these. Uh, I don't know which one to go with. Uh, I, I found that article back on the, it, the, the. It's called the Navimate. Was that one you had heard about before, Don? Oh, uh, let me look real quick. I just thought I had that on my. One second. Okay, the Navimate is the one that sounded really good, but uh, you're not seeing much about that one anymore. Okay. So I, I guess. Uh, one that's... after that is the Sea Guide, which I have. And the common one that you see is uh, the C-Nav, or Scuba-Nav, I'm sorry. That's a Recon Pro and the Aquadive Pro. That's uh, Scuba-Nav, but they're not inexpensive. Okay. So those are like the rigs that commercial divers are using? They can be, yeah. Or more, would be an organization that had a bigger budget. <laughs> okay. So, so like, say we're doing a little bit of underwater archaeology and you want to get some waypoints for the corner of your site... That'd be something you'd use. That's what you'd probably use that for, and that's one of the reasons they they said they'd have that. Yeah, I, I just know I had visited the site. And I'm just, you know, even if it's all vaporware, just I, I like the idea. I like the, you know, they talked about eventually having a unit, you know, on a boat, and then the the dive master on the boat could see where everybody was. I, you know, I saw that. I did see that, and I, I have to, yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool myself. It's like. Excuse me, how are you going to do that? Well, I've the seen directional it done with pingers, you can do it with pingers, you know. Uh-huh. But I've not seen it done with a GPS. That's what. I mean, how they got the GPS to do that, I don't know. Yeah, well, that'll be that'll be interesting to see. So maybe it's vaporware, and a year from now we'll be talking about it still. But uh, just to to get my mind thinking on this, you know, being scuba obsessed like we are. Uh, I, I just think that's that's interesting, and and if I if I was a dive operator, I, you know, Jim and his wife talked me into watching that that crazy movie a few years ago, and that's always in the back of my mind of the the boat sailing off and saying we got everybody else, and 
you know, me there being you are. Two that yeah. were left out there, yeah. Yeah, what was that movie, Open Water? Yep, that was it. Open Water. Gosh, I, I still, I mean, it still sends shivers up my spine just to think about that. Yeah, to be yeah. to be really out there and alone, that would be a a, a trying time. Yeah, see that dorsal fin, yes, sir, we Bob. Yeah, but but the, but moment. those th- those two didn't seem to be the brightest to me. It's like they they, they <laughs> like they, they they kicked off all their gear right away. I couldn't figure out what the heck they doing. You know, I, I'd have been holding on to that gear. You would oh, think. Oh. You, 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 you would think. think. So uh, that, I that, that's. I guess you get rid of the tank, maybe, but I sure get my BC. Exactly. They just threw everything off, and then I don't know. I guess hypothermia. I hold yours, Darren, if you want it. <laughs> and I put my legs on that one, and my body here. And I take Jim, and you, you two can go swim for help. Yeah, that's a good thing. That's, yeah, that's that's a, yeah. We we appreciate the thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just going to watch your gear for you. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, he's make sure it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, yep, yeah. Like oh, I said, I don't have to outswim that shark. All I have to do is outswim the my buddy who can't swim yeah. to outswim the shark. That's, That's one right. of my favorite. It's one of my favorite settings. It's usually on land, but I guess it takes. It works just as well in the water. Oh, absolutely. So I think we've just about done it for another week of scuba obsessed. Uh, definitely want to thank Don again for agreeing to come on. You know, de- definitely, anytime you want to come on the show, you're more than welcome. You know, th- we can make room for three or four or five guest hosts, but this is, this has been a blast. Absolutely. Well, we can't get out around the coffee table very much, so this this was pretty good. Yeah, and we'll be doing this every week, every Thursday at nine. We'll have our scuba obsessed netcast. So, I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in. Uh, We'll be here again next week. Until next time, I'm Darren. And I'm Jim. And I'm Don. (laughs) Now go out there and get wet. We'll see you all later. And dive safe. Yep, be safe.